Welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, or on one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners, or on The Green Majority podcast. And we should make no mistake, Canada is not better than America. We are America. We're all part of the same international, racist, hegemonic superstructure that has been designed for white supremacy, oligarchy, and fossil fuel addiction, which is still, in the face of a world-shaking pandemic, failing to understand that its days are either numbered or else most of us will perish. We seem to be opting for the latter, since we're trying now to shakily open businesses again, gathering in parks, and throwing money at the industries that are killing us, while our essential workers, the people with the fewest benefits and the most precarity, are risking their lives to keep this whole thing afloat. If you look to the States, you'll see lynchings being carried out by the police and citizens alike some 155 years after the official end of slavery, refugees dying of neglect and maltreatment in immigrant detention jails run by private for-profit businesses, and refugees being deported to random countries for testing positive for COVID-19. And you might think that these are problems restricted to the United States. But if you turn the mirror on our beloved Canada, you'll notice that, in the midst of a pandemic, we have profited grandly from facilitating the collapse of the healthcare system in Yemen since we started selling weapons to Saudi Arabia again on April 9th, which has been bombing Yemen indiscriminately for years. We have also recently signed an opaque deal with Amazon to distribute health supplies across the country, which is a company that is blatantly sacrificing its workers to the pandemic by refusing to protect them, while also cutting their pay. Amazon is also now getting local newsrooms across the U.S. to parrot their corporate propaganda as if it were real news. And this isn't simply advertising masquerading as news articles in print or online, which has been happening for years, but news anchors are actually repeating word for word a script of adulation given to them by Amazon to sing the corporation's praises as if it were a COVID savior. Now, it's important for any environmentalist to be constantly observing the intersectionality of ecological collapse and racist oppression based on greed and nihilistic materialism, because any real environmentalism must deal with the structure of society as a whole. But it's doubly important for us to mention it today, because we are going to have a discussion of the newly published Six Principles of a Just Recovery for All, which is a document of transformative intent in response to COVID, and it is meant as a broad blueprint or roadmap towards indigenous justice, international solidarity, workers' rights, local participation, poverty alleviation, and ecological sustainability that was released this week as a result of the work of over 150 organizations across Canada, including Stefan and Lauren, who will be speaking about this shortly, and we will also be speaking with Atia Jafar, the Senior Digital Specialist at Canada 350, who had a hand in crafting the document as well. It is a decidedly human document, in that it makes a case for a beautifully all-encompassing human solidarity, and in that abstract way, it obliquely participates in the broad debate about the human spirit, or so-called human nature, 
which is a line of thought that has helped color Western economic policy for a long time. Are we essentially selfish, or are we essentially altruistic, or can such a thing be pinned down at all, and does it matter, or is the very idea of a human essence just a leveling brick for gaining power? Rick Roderick, an American philosopher of the postmodern condition, argued in 1990 that our culture itself was beginning to destroy, deconstruct, or disrupt the very conditions for being human at all. Arguing for radical democracy, he said, quote, Dancing on the Berlin Wall was fun, because that system was so crude and not postmodern enough. They didn't understand that there are walls that you can build that cannot be seen between people. Those are harder walls to overthrow, the walls they build between different races and classes and sexes in our society. These walls will be much harder to storm, because they won't be the kind that will be available for storming. Those kind of walls and that kind of totalitarianism, they are the dark side of the American dream. In the same lecture, towards the end, he said, quote, If hope goes, everything goes with it. It's a desperate form of argument, but these are desperate times. If hope goes to reconstruct our lives, everything else will go with it. Everything. Don't forget that the structural principles of our society are as barbaric in their structure as they ever were. Perhaps more so. Perhaps more so. Before we turn uh, directly to the six principles of a just recovery for all, released this week by a coalition of 150 organizations across Canada, we're going to take a look at a brief history of neoliberal economic policy that uh, the Dutch historian Rutger Bregman has written for The Correspondent. He shows how men like Milton Friedman rebelled against the high-tax, social safety net status quo Keynesianism of their time in favor of the radical privatization of almost everything. Friedman believed that crises provided an opportunity for once radical ideas to become mainstream, and just such a crisis came in the economic downturn of the 1970s, after which politicians on the right, as well as on the left, adopted an agenda of privatization and a hostile stance towards unions, social benefits, and government enterprise at large. The 2008 financial crisis then somehow only strengthened that ideology, but it also opened up some intellectual space for new economic ideas to gestate. Now, in the brutal light of the COVID pandemic, everyone is seeing very clearly whose jobs actually matter, and so-called radical left-wing ideas have entered the mainstream. Inequality, tax dodging, and the ludicrously top-heavy situation with the 1%, have become normal household topics, and it's gotten to the point where even the Financial Times is advocating for basic income and wealth redistribution. Bregman attributes these changes to economists like Thomas Piketty, but the most interesting of his mentions is Mariana Mazzucato and her ilk, who are working with policymakers around the globe, and who in fact reject the language of wealth sharing and redistribution, 
because they recognize that wealth is not simply created by entrepreneurs who then benevolently dole it out to people who aren't as successful as they, but that wealth is created collectively and is merely siphoned into the hands of a certain minority. More concretely, Mazzucato provided a revelation for policymakers when she showed in 2014 uh, how it's public rather than private investment that is actually the main driver of innovation, especially in technology and medicine. And yet, the private companies who capitalize off public research don't have to pay governments back, are instead given more money by the government, and are in turn allowed to dodge even paying their taxes. One hideous example of this dynamic happening now is the case of the coronavirus treatment Remdesivir, which was paid for by the American public, but it is the private firm Gilead that will have all the control. Now, it appears that an assortment of generic drugs might be better at fighting COVID than Remdesivir, but still, such obvious absurdities could help change the way we see government spending, especially as more mainstream economists are even starting to argue that deficits and government debt and balanced budgets don't necessarily matter that much, which has great implications for a just recovery and a Green New Deal, since the greatest argument against these things is that we can't afford them. Uh, we can't prove this to you here, since we don't have the expertise, but stay tuned for Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, which is meant to come out on June 9th. But as Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor said in a recent interview with the CBC, quote, the fight against global warming fits well with adjustments in our inequalities. Because if you have investments to make, you can direct the investments in jobs to people in the form of the Green New Deal. That's one obvious direction to go. And the other obvious direction is to say, no, we can't afford this. And as Bregman writes, quote, it's not hard to imagine this crisis might send us down an even darker path. That rulers will use it to seize more power, restrict their population's freedom, and stoke the flames of racism and hatred. But things can be different. Thanks to the hard work of countless activists and academics, networkers and agitators, we can also imagine another way. This pandemic could send us down a path of new values. And just to rhetorically hammer down the potential of a just recovery for all, I will once again quote Rick Roderick, who said, quote, No, it is not utopian to demand that in a world with this kind of technology, that as a moral demand, a society feed, clothe, and house its people. A society that doesn't do it, with the kind of technology and the wealth we have, is beneath contempt and makes a mockery of the previous history of civilization. Yeah. So to to jump off that quote with a with a brief, it's a rant. I'm gonna admit it's a rant. I was gonna call it anything else, but I I don't think it is. Um, and then I'll, and then I'll throw it to you, Lauren. What, what strikes me about this, and it strikes me about a couple different parts of that, what you just read, David, is that perhaps the greatest trick of capitalism uh, has played is it's managed to change the fundamental question we're supposed to be asking ourselves in regards uh, to those who rule. Uh, which somehow we've accepted that the central question should not be how do we ensure that everyone has enough and that we take care of each other, but instead, how do we pay for it? And so much of the left has become so focused on convincing the how will we pay for it crowd that they, that they, give, that they, that they give up the game altogether. You know, they agree to fight on the battlefield of economics and economic theory rather than that sort of first central question. And what's incredible is because 
which is incredible because over the years, it's become clear that the other side doesn't even really care about that question. Given the massive deficits and tax cuts provided to the most wealthy, the right wing in North America has left the liberals to fight themselves uh, to justify modest, toned-down improvements on a deeply flawed social safety nets, while they've moved on to entrenching their oligarchical power through buying up the media, as we see ever more presently here in Canada, entrenching, entrenching conservative approaches in the judicial system, and building more and more complex taxation avoidance schemes to ensure that the rich will, will become ever more powerful. I mean, even during this time of great economic downturn, billionaires are adding billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to their wealth. And to me, this is the central issue. You know, if you go on the street and ask someone uh, what, you know, what the purpose of society or civilization is, you know, 99 times out of 100, they will say it's to better the lives of humanity. The last 1% may answer differently, but that's because that is exclusively because it benefits themselves. And it's it's this it's it's this it's this that I think has come. Maybe it's this central reality that has that that COVID has maybe drawn the most stark contrast, which is that we've been forced to ask ourselves the question: How to take care of uh, of people now for this short period of time, even, and that has led us to being to doing things that we forever had said was impossible. You know, they're putting homeless people into actual long term housing as a way to allow them to social isolate. You know, the Ontario government is finally be beginning to believe that we should actually take care of our elderly in 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 the, the horrific privatization of, of long-term care homes is being exposed. And it's, it, this, I think, might be the thing that we're actually seeing here. Uh, but to you, Lauren. Yeah, um, I think you make a really, really good point there around the privatization of long-term care homes, um, sort of colloquially referred to as nursing homes. Um, and I think for any sort of um, Ontarians or Canadians that might be listening, that, that's been in the news frequently, that's sort of an immediate example we can pull from. But, but I think you sort of, um, you hit the nail on the head there. Stefan, when you were talking about the idea that like it's we we have to sort of reconsider the question of what government exists for. I remember um, my father's not a listener, so I don't need to worry about talking about him on air. But a couple months ago, I sort of like he and I were getting in a bit of an altercation about sort of debt and the purpose of government and why it exists and whether or not we should trust a governing body. It was it was this whole big nebulous conversation. But I think at one point I made the point where I, I think I said flat out, I was like, the government exists to take care of you. The government exists to provide for its citizenship and protect them as best it is able, regardless of whether or not the government actually lives up to that sort of um, goal that, that we should be setting for it. And I think sort of the plight of neoliberalism in the 70s and 80s and 90s and early 2000s really sort of worked to counteract that and really sort of worked to drive home that narrative that you are smarter as an independent person, you are stronger as an independent person, and you are better at decision making and providing for yourself than a collective could ever be for providing for each other. And I think that has done us such an extreme disservice um, across across all social issues and strata, uh, including including issues like climate change, including issues like housing for people and poverty alleviation. And, and now we're seeing it sort of manifest with this uh, with with COVID, with what we're experiencing, and and yeah, you can see it when you point to specific examples, like the overwhelming number of people who have passed away in long-term care facilities because they are being so mismanaged, because they are privatized, and by nature, a private company is at its core just trying to make money for its shareholders or its owners, as opposed to a government, uh, like a government, which is ultimately trying to provide what's best for its citizens, theoretically. 
Yeah. Well, and I think I think what's what underlines that particular point quite clearly, I think, is the fact that in homes that are being that that are that are public, people are are not are not experiencing the same levels of deaths. Like people, more people are are are, are surviving or or not getting it in these other homes. Uh, that are being treated public, and I think like it's one thing to be like old people are very successful, so of course there'd be more death deaths in this area. But it's also important to note that we are seeing that you it doesn't have to be like this. It's a decision, you know, in the name of profit. Yes, and but, yeah, and and to be clear, we're not saying that that people that work for publicly owned facilities are are inherently better or kinder than people who work in privatized facilities. That's that's not the argument anyone is making. Um, it's simply the sort of ethos at the heart of the operation. Um, and I guess like at the heart of like what's sort of driving the priorities of, of either the management or the executive level of an organization. Um, and it's that with one, with one it's, it's saving money and it's a dollar. And with the other, it's, it's kind of, it's, I don't know how to explain it more simply than that. Um, but yeah, on one hand, it's a dollar. And on the other hand, it's, it's prioritizing human life. very excited to be joined by Atia Jafar from uh, 350, who's the senior digital specialist at the Can- in the Canada team. Uh, welcome, Atia. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back, it, although not in the studio. Very different. Yes. Great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, exactly. The, the very different experience, but which, although it, this is perhaps one of the few times where it wouldn't have been possible anyways to have you in the studio. So this is maybe uh, a win for all of us because you are located in on the West Coast, am I correct? It's true, yes. So I used to live in Toronto, and when I lived in Toronto, I had the wonderful opportunity to be on the show many times, but now I live in Vancouver, which is great, but it is far from Toronto, and it's harder to be in that, the studio. It's sad for us, uh, but great for you, and and also the fact that you that uh, we get to have you back on the show is amazing. So welcome back. Um, and we're talking about the Just Recovery Principles, which is a, both an amazing uh, project, but also something that has managed to I guess, sort of like this interview, cross Canada. You know, the fact that, you know, some of us are working here in Toronto, people are literally across Canada. But could you give us a quick overview on, on, on how we get got here uh, and in how these principles were developed? Yes, of course. So uh, I'm very excited to have put this into the world yesterday. So we have already almost 300 organizations and groups and unions across Canada that have endorsed the Just Recovery Principles. We had just 100 uh, endorsed within the last 24 hours. So it's been an incredible journey. And uh, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about them. So essentially, uh, you know, a lot of us, well, everyone was, of course, taken aback by the pandemic. And I think, you know, the, the pandemic itself was hard enough. But I think the economic crisis really reminded us that this pandemic is just exposing a lot of social inequities that have already been present. Um, but what it's done is that it's brought so many people closer to the edge, like even though they were already on the edge as a result of all of these, as, as a result of how our economy is built. So essentially, um, a few of us started having this conversation around how it's great that we have been able to respond as a movement to the pandemic. Uh, we've been able to step up in a huge way. People have been helping their neighbors. There's been a massive movement in support of mutual aid where people are supporting their neighbors uh, who are struggling or supporting their friends. There's been a massive movement to hold the government accountable and make sure that the government is meeting people's needs. That's how CERB emerged and so many other provisions that are coming from the government in support of tenants and workers. 
um, and those who are unemployed. But we also were thinking about what's going to happen as we come out of this pandemic. We are in an economic crisis right now, and we know that in the past, when this has happened, right-wing interests have advocated for massive cuts, and that's what happened. We've seen massive austerity after economic crises. That's what we saw in 2008, and that's something that right-wing interests are already advocating for now. They're lobbying governments hard to cut our social nets after this pandemic lifts, to bail out corporations and banks so that our, our economy can bounce back. And I'm doing quotation fingers with my hands as I say bounce, bounce back. Yeah. Um, so we need a movement response. We need a progressive response. We need an alternative vision. Um, so that's basically where this emerged. Uh, a few groups, it was initially a couple of climate justice organizations, essentially, um, who had already been organizing against uh, bailouts for big oil companies that had been asking for bailouts um, throughout the pandemic. Um, we started thinking about what we can do to plan ahead um, as we come out of this crisis, as we start to rebuild the economy, how can we demand action so we can build back better? Um, and so we started bringing in other groups because the climate justice movement represents such a small part of the social movements in this country. Um, we started bringing in groups that are focused on workers' rights, uh, on it, like we brought in artist collective folks, um, folks like you, Stefan, who are doing really amazing community organizing um, in your respective cities. Um, so yeah, it was just, it essentially grew into a big tent of organizations and grassroots groups across the country. And we drafted principles for a just recovery uh, it was essentially, these, these principles were drafted with 150 different people and groups in a Google Doc. It's really a miracle that we yeah. were able to put it all together because it was so many different voices. But I think that kind of breadth is what makes this so strong in the first place. Yeah, I will say, uh, watching, watching people try to bring this together with, with the number of different people on those calls and the number of people's voices coming into this was, was remarkable. Um, and, and the art is amazing. The, the website, which we'll get to in a second, I believe is justrecoveryforall.ca. Go there and check out the art because the art's amazing. And if you tell, what's the artist's name again? So Corina Keeling is the artist that we worked with. She's absolutely incredible. The art is really, really beautiful. I think it really captures what we're trying to get across, um, the kind of world that we're trying to build. And it's so important for art to be at the center of the kind of movement building that we're doing because it's what allows us to lean into our collective imagination. So, so grateful that Karina was able to lend her skills and her beautiful uh, talents, her amazing talents uh, to build such a beautiful um, visual element for these principles. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're amazing. And a common theme on the show that go into, which I won't get too much, is how important I think some of the art coming out of this, some of the conversations coming out of this is around what types of work are also climate work. You know, there's a, there's a background that, 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 that 350, uh, I think, national, international sort of put forward about saying care work is climate work. But I think art is so often in that same bubble of like, how do we live and live well low carbon lifestyles? And a big part of that has to be engaging in, in celebrating each other with, with art. But to, to move on, because we should probably actually say what these principles are, if you can give it a quick headline, of, 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 you don't have to say the whole text of it, but just the headline of the thing. And then maybe more specifically, because I think this is actually a, a place where people get uh, confused or when I've had conversations with people, uh, one, of the, one of the conversations keeps being like, but there's not really real asks here. And so, and so I'm curious if you, you can sort of go over both the principles are, but then also more specifically how they're meant to be used. Yes, exactly. Yes. So um, the, the six principles of a just recovery are principle one, put people's health and well-being first, no exceptions. Principle two, strengthen the social safety net and provide relief directly to the people. Principle three is prioritize the needs of workers and communities. 
Four is build resilience to prevent future crises. Five is build solidarity and equity across communities, generations, and borders. And then principle six is uphold indigenous rights and work in partnership with indigenous peoples. Clearly, these are very both broad asks or, or, or principles. Again, they, well, they are as principles, but like, but how, how are people supposed to take those and use them? Yes, uh, exactly. So I think uh, you're right that the, the principles are very all-encompassing. And to find out, you know, I think that uh, there's also, there is more detail to them on the website. So if folks want to learn more about each principle, you can visit the West website, justrecoveryforall.ca. Um, but I just to give an example of how different groups are using these principles. So essentially, as I mentioned before, we brought together different kinds of groups. A lot of them are campaigning organizations that are campaigning um, and pushing different political targets across the country. Um, these principles are meant to be used in whatever way is helpful for different campaigns to push for the vision that we're looking for. And we understand that a lot of the organizations that we brought in have strengths in different areas. So for example, um, a lot of these principles are relevant for municipal organizing. So I know right here in Vancouver, where I live on unceded Coast Salish territories, there is a group of people here that's advocating for a just recovery and pushing the municipal government here. So they're pushing our council and our mayor to deliver a just recovery that ensures that people who are most vulnerable here in our city will be taken care of. Um, and so they are all kind of, you know, they're focused on pushing for bold action from the municipal government that's going to ensure that the government provides services to people instead of providing them, providing cuts to corporations um, that the, that the, um, that the, the municipality is essentially taking care of people first and the community first. Um, I know there are other organizations like 350 that are more capacity to organize at the national level. Um, so for 350, for example, and other organizations such as Lead Now, we are really looking at the federal government. And we know that the federal government is actually developing a plan for a recovery from the pandemic right now. And we think right now is the best time to actually influence that plan before it is written. So we are working really hard to make sure that these principles are delivered to federal ministers, to cabinet ministers who are developing a just recovery plan right now. And that this, this plan can essentially counter what the federal government is hearing from uh, different kind of right-wing and corporate interests, which is the opposite. The corporations are asking for bailouts for themselves, for CEOs. We are asking for people to be supported first, for workers to be supported first. So we're putting forward an alternative vision and we are really focusing with our eyes set on the federal government. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of different organizations that are taking it to different places. Um, I know that the LEAP has an amazing campaign that's called the People's Bailout. Um, so they're kind of lifting up this work in that space. Um, I really recommend going to justrecoveryforall.ca to learn more about the various different campaigns that fit under the banner of a just recovery, because as you mentioned, there's a lot of work in there. There's a lot of campaigns that are either focused on one principle or a segment of one principle. There are other organizations that are focused on trying to push the broader vision altogether at once. Um, but on the, on the website, there's actually, if you click the button that says take action, you can find a link to a, a just recovery yellow pages where you can learn about campaigns all across the country, um, across various sectors and various fields that are working for just recovery. Cool. Is, well, if you have a second, are you able to sort of dive into those yellow pages and maybe and maybe list a couple so people can kind of, I'm hoping that sort of people can start imagining what this sort of looks like. Because in, in my vision, and correct me if I'm, if I'm misunderstanding the, the purpose, a, a little bit of this goal is in some ways to co-create a platform 
you know, it's to co-create a set of uh, policies and, and, th and agreements and, and ideas that could be, that could actually be sort of taken up by the government, but instead of it coming from the government ideas down or from small groups that are, are, that are, that are sort of talking to each other, it's from, it's from the grassroots up that these groups are saying, th you know, demanding, you know, they, they, they understand their own community as better than anyone else. And they're saying, this is what would help our community and bring the, and using these principles to bring those to the fore. Is that a decent way of understanding it? Exactly. Absolutely. I think the principles kind of reflect that there is a massive movement that's behind the vision that we're putting forward into the world. And I think the groups themselves are kind of campaigning um, and targeting specific uh, decision makers and uh, also like using the principles to support their more, uh, their more focused demands that's, if they have them. Cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. So do you have a couple uh, that you may have pulled up that you can just go through for a second? Yes, absolutely. So I have it pulled out right now. Um, so yeah, a lot of really, really amazing campaigns. So Toronto Environmental Alliance, that is uh, closer to you, Stefan, yeah. um, is uh, working on a campaign to support a green and just recovery for the city of Toronto. So they're really using the just recovery principles to, uh, to push for a, a better future uh, and demanding it from the municipal government in Toronto. Um, Some of Us, which is a global organization, is basically pushing governments to drop oil subsidies and reinvest in a green economy instead. So again, very much in line with the vision for a just recovery to build resilience for the future, to ensure that we're not um, coming out of this crisis and making another crisis like the climate crisis worse. Um, so West Coast Environmental Law, which operates here in Vancouver, um, they're focused on a provincial campaign actually, and they're targeting Premier Horgan in BC and telling him to ensure that BC is putting a plan into action that allows us to build back better. Um, we have other really amazing, uh, yeah, amazing uh, different uh, campaigns. There's the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. So they have a petition for a healthy recovery um, from the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so essentially, you know, making sure that people's health is put first. And it's a really, really important voice coming from a united group of physicians. Uh, and their their target is also Prime Minister Trudeau, so they're they're focused at a national level as well, and they're operating in English and in French, which is really really awesome. And of course, there's people that are that have existing campaigns that have become even more relevant and even more urgent right now. So uh, the Canadian Doctors for Medicare have a campaign calling for universal pharmacare, and uh, of course, we know this this crisis has reminded us that we need better better and more accessible medical services for everyone. Um, so of course they're, they're you know, using the principles as a way to lift up their campaign for Pharmacare. Um, yeah, really just really amazing, amazing campaign. But are, are there any um, ones that you had questions about, Stefan? The, the, th the thought was really just to sort of get a sense of both the breadth of the types of calls that are coming into this, and then also uh, some of the ways that people could get involved. Because the sort of last last piece of the of the puzzle here, of course, is is how people who may not have organizations, you know, who may not be, but who may be individuals who are just sort of seeing the world out there and being like, well, this obviously is bad. Maybe we should do something, or maybe who are being woken up by by this crisis to understand that like maybe that this is a time when true change can really happen. You know, you're actually hearing things from from different political spheres where that imply that they're open for dramatic change, which I think is a, a shift from, you know, any other time in at least my own memory. I will say that the federal government right now to me is perhaps the, the best we could have hoped for for this moment in a minority government that should be at, at its most listening to the people. Like, if anything, yeah. there should be their one moment to really get a good package through. And so I think it makes a lot of sense. So... 
perhaps we can go there, which is, I'm a hypothetical person who doesn't have an organization or a radio show. So I want to get involved in, in this movement. What are some ways I can do that? Yeah, so absolutely. I think, yeah, check out the Yellow Pages because there are so many amazing campaigns there. And I, I really recommend just having a look and uh, seeing the amazing work. Even just to, you know, if you're feeling sad, I think it's a great place to go to for inspiration and hope. Um, but in addition to that, um, I really want to lift up this amazing project that my team is working on at 350. So we are currently working on a project for teach-ins for a just recovery where our, our theory here is that we really want to make sure that as many people as possible are talking about this vision for just recovery because that's how we can make it a reality if everyone has it on their mind. So we're encouraging people to talk to, to, talk to their community members about a just recovery and we recognize that uh, teach-ins um, are a, a tactic that have been used in the past by social movements. So a teach-in is essentially where you gather a group of people together and um, you talk about um, a problem and you talk about the solutions that you want to see for that problem um, and solutions that you want to organize for together. So this is a tactic that was used in Idle No More during the Occupy movement. It was really critical to building the foundations for the mass mobilizations that we saw later on in the, in the, in the life, lifetime of those movements. Um, so we know that right now also like there's physical distancing, so we can't really get together in person. So teach-ins is a great tactic that can also be translated online. So we're hosting, we're inviting people to host online teach-ins in support for a just recovery. We have nearly 30 events that are already up on our map. So they're starting as early as Thursday. So you can visit our website, 350.org slash JR teach-ins. You can find out all the information about how to join a digital teach-in with community members near you. So it could be a great opportunity to even connect with neighbors that you don't even know, um, but who are organizing and excited about a just recovery. Um, and you can do that even while we are respecting physical distancing protocols. Um, and if you cannot find a teacher near you, we also encourage you to maybe consider hosting one. Um, we're providing everything that people need. Uh, we are providing a slide deck, we're providing speaking notes, we have a toolkit um, that also lays out like some of the different digital platforms that you could use to host your teacher in like Zoom or um, Google Meets is a great one. Um, so yeah, so really recommend uh, going on to there because it's a great starting point. And of course, we're going to use these teach-ins to build the base and foundation of a movement that we will mobilize you know, throughout the summer and into the fall to demand a just recovery from the federal government. And that feeds into a broader vision because the just recovery is basically just like a plan to repair mm -hmm. after. Um, but we know that we're going to, we can't go back to normal. We know that normal was not good enough. It wasn't good enough for most people and it wasn't good enough for the planet or for the climate. So we really need to figure out how we're also working towards a better future and a new normal. Um, and so the Just Recovery Plans will feed into an ongoing kind of mobilization for a Green New Deal. And it is a very opportune time to fight for a Green New Deal that rebuilds our economy to tackle the climate crisis and tackle inequality um, just because the conditions that we're seeing right now, they're so similar to the conditions um, in the U.S. during the Great Depression before the original New Deal. Um, and we know that investing in, the, investing in you know, people and communities and climate action and having government action that invests into, into, the, into our communities is what will bring us out of this crisis in a way that works for everyone and not just a wealthy few. Couple points of clarity, which I realized are useful for people. We're recording this on Tuesday, 
and the principles launched on Monday. So the fact that there was fascinating is the principles launched, like I think there was, there was launched, I think with just under, just over 200. Now they've over 300. So by the time this airs on Friday, there could be, you know, by that rate of growth, three, four, 500 groups already signed on uh, and, and hopefully more. So if you have your group, there's still time to sign on. And if you want to find the, the yellow pages, I'm realizing that this is sort of a, I started looking for it so I could let people know how to find it. You have to go to the FAQ and the last question of the FAQ is what other just recovery work is being done in Canada? And there's a link uh, to the Google Doc there that has that, has that link. Uh, you can also, uh, uh, there's also, there's, it's linked everywhere just because we uh, want to make sure, get, make sure people get to it. So you can also go to take action. And once you go to take action, there's a button that says support the campaigns. So oh. if you go to support the campaigns, it will take you to the yellow pages. Oh. Also, there's a button to it under the endorsers page. So pretty much at the bottom of any page. You can find this. And yeah. I will say there are, a, wow, there are already so many. Yeah, it definitely, it fills my heart with joy to see so many organizations and so many groups in support of a, a just recovery. It's really beautiful to see. And so many amazing campaigns that are already making such a splash across the country. So, well, thank you so much. I guess I'll leave you with, uh, with, with a question that I, that I posed uh, to, to a few folks previously, which is, which is just where are you finding hope these days? You know, it's a, it's a sad, scary place out there in this world right now, despite all the sun that we've been getting here in Toronto the past four days. So where are you finding help? Yeah, you know, I have to say um, some days it's easier than others because it is a very turbulent time. Um, but I have to say that for me, hope does come from organizing because hope for me doesn't mean waiting around and just um, hoping for a miracle. I think for me, it means getting to work. And I, I think just being able to organize with so many amazing people and imagine a better future, imagine a better world, and to actually start putting plans into motion in support of that is where I'm finding hope. And I think it's been really inspiring for me to see how many other people are really, really energized around organizing in this moment, even though we're all feeling the weight of this crisis, it's impacting everyone in one way or another. I think it's incredible to see how many people for the first time maybe, or after a long time, have just stepped up to organize in creative ways to get together with their community members and to demand better and to essentially, you know, get to work on building a better society. So whether it's by organizing mutual aid in their community and helping their neighbors, uh, you know, access groceries during the pandemic, or um, if it's, you know, organizing in support of a rent freeze or a rent strike or organizing to call for, um, you know, better kind of um, social nets and better, um, like more rights for frontline workers. People are getting to work. They're demanding better. They're, they're demanding a better future, but they're also already doing the work so that we can build back better. So it's been really inspiring for me to see the organizing, to be a small part of the incredible force that we're seeing around the world when it comes to organizing in support of a better future. Um, so that's, that's, yeah, that's the biggest thing for me right now. That's a, a great answer. Thank you so much, Atia. We'll hope we have you on again soon now that we have this wonderful technology that lets us talk across yeah. the entire, the, at least two time zones and half the country. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would love to come back. Yes, please do. Uh, and of course, also, I guess, uh, through time, because this will air on Friday and we're recording on Tuesday. Thanks so <laughs> much. And we'll keep coming back to this conversation for, honestly, the foreseeable future, because this is the fight. We're in it. Let's do it. Thanks so much. Yes, day. of course. Yeah, thanks so much, Stefan. Take care. 
Hooray for our own native isle, Newfoundland. Not a stranger shall hold one inch of its strand. Her face turns to Britain, her back to the Gulf. Come near at your peril, Canadian wolf. And we are going to continue on with the Just Recovery for All with Stefan and Lauren. Uh, these are, as we know, broad principles that outline a potential response to the COVID pandemic, that is, a rebuilding of the economy, that would address things like climate change and systemic oppression in a way that takes care of everyone's basic needs through such measures as guaranteeing living wages and increasing social benefits. It also aims to counteract potential responses to the pandemic that might further entrench or empower authoritarianism and it urges us as a society to recognize the interdependence of social and environmental health, the need to build collective resilience against future crises, and to build international solidarity both within and without our borders. So uh, Stefan and Lauren both have had a chance to work on these principles as they've been developed over the past, what is it, month? Month and a half-ish. Month and a half. So now that they've been released, uh, what's happening? What do you guys think about it? Yeah, but quickly before we get into it, I just want to frame out a little bit about the the where we are in Canada, what kind of Canada the just recovery principles are landing in, because I think I think that's valuable, uh, and just pulling a couple of news stories that recently came out, you know, um, the, so we're in a Canada that the right now one of the major narratives is sort of this divided Canada in with the West with the West specific Alberta and Saskatchewan and the oil producing companies feeling alienated from the federal government because it doesn't because there are no liberal seats in there and this concept that that they're being sort of you know left behind in an economic transition although they're very desperately trying to prevent that economic transition um, and we've seen that you know the Alberta government has straight up decided that it doesn't see fit to even pretend it has any concerns about environment anymore. Uh, if that's if the if the COVID has 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 left uh, other things laid bare, one of them is their lack of interest. You know, they've recently rescinded a decades-old ban on open pit coal mines in the Rockies and the foothills. Uh, I think earlier this week or maybe late last week, their energy minister made international news by arguing how now is the time to push through pipelines because protests would be difficult because of social distancing rules. And then when asked about it, basically doubled down and said that she was stating the obvious. You know. Um, the, which, which to me indicates this, the lack of social license that fossil fuel infrastructure has in this country and across the world. You know, the Ontario government is changing laws to make it easier to evict tenants, uh, while sending its, while, while spending its money expanding hot highways. You know, once again, like if we're going to experience a re recovery from this, the worst thing that could possibly happen is that a bunch of these large, uh, a bunch of real estate goes into hands of, of of hedge funds. That's the worst case scenario, I think, in some ways. Um, you know, municipalities everywhere are hemorrhaging cash uh, that would that with and that would that would without some form of support mean unprecedented service cuts to transit, libraries, and just about everything else. And and then you have the minority federal government. Which arguably, uh, you know, this the these recovery principles are targeted at. Although in the competition of that here you just heard, they've been used to actually you know push any level of government and could arguably be used to push any type of recovery at all. You know, you could see this being brought to funders as well. Um, but you know, but arguably for the sake of this conversation, a little bit, the minority federal government is sort of left with this question: uh, with how do we want to recover? And, and I think that's that, that to me is sort of the, the world's coming into. Uh, but to you, Lauren, how are you sort of feeling about the world's coming into and, and what it was like working on these principles? 
Yeah, no, uh, thank you for that summary. That was succinct um, and super effective. Yeah, so these principles were sort of drafted over the course of, like you said, about a month and a half. I think actually almost two months now, if we were to theoretically like look at look at when meetings were first starting to happen. And uh, I think what's really fantastic about these principles, and, and I know this has been touched on already, is just the sheer number of organizations and communities and individuals who have had a hand putting this together. So yes, it's they, these principles are coming into a world that is, um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to say. My first instinct is to say, because like, like you said, it's, it's a minority government and, and we have Alberta being such a, such a classic stick in the mud in terms of, um, progress here. But, um, so, so in some ways it, it could be said they're coming to kind of a hostile political environment uh, because people are so on edge. Um, everybody has their backup about, about financial spending and about uh, running a deficit and um, sort of what is and is not possible within this country right now. But they're also coming in to a world that is really, really hungry for change and really, really hungry for that change to be driven by civil society and to be driven by, by sort of the ideals that um, maybe this younger generation um, has sort of brought with it. Uh, I think there's a whole lot of young people and, and older people for that matter, not to, not to sort of stratify it along generational lines, but there's a whole lot of people who know that a better world is possible if only we sort of have have the courage to dream it um, and have the wherewithal to build it and channel money and resources towards it and and be willing to um, when I say make sacrifices I don't mean in in sort of an austerity sense but but sort of like yeah pick and choose where where we want to uh, concentrate our energy um, and I think that's what's so neat about these principles is because like yes they're only six principles yes they're quite brief but um, they really do have that sort of uh, ideological energy that I think we need in order to dream big um, and and have something to work towards. But at the same time, they also have like very clear requests. And it's not ideology for ideology's sake. It's um, it's it's ideology in the name of prioritizing people and the well-being of everyday folks. So this isn't just if you're listening and you're frustrated because we just sound like big pipe dreamer leftists that that's really not the case here the the, the priority here is putting uh, like the first one says put health and well-being first no exceptions and and i think that is something that theoretically everybody can agree on especially um having sort of been demonstrated through this pandemic what it looks like when we don't care for each other yeah yeah and, and i think the i think you're right I, th I think what's interesting is that we are also a generation uh, or a set of people that the last crisis is not so long ago that we don't remember it and we don't remember how the recovery went. You know, it's like it's not too common. In fact, it's quite uncommon to have two, quote unquote, once in a lifetime, you know, recessions occur within 12 years of each other. You know, th th this is this is a moment in which it's not like you can pretend that you're going back far enough that people don't remember the, what happened last time. You know, what happened last time was 12 years ago and those people are still around and we remember and see how many different types of things are going on. You know, there's, there's conversations right now about how, right. Some of the worst landlords that exist for people in the States right now are people are, are, are hedge funds that purchased houses 
uh, during the economic downturn and then turn this around to, to rental properties, which are now when they're using this level of leverage to now be terrible landlords to the people who could who had who lost their house in 2008 and now are a chance to lose their house again. And that was what that kind of economic recovery brought. Right, like the economic recovery that prioritized propping up these massive institutions like banks uh, and ensuring these, like you know, that kind of that sort of money exists out there. That's the that's we what we got was a fake response where you know for twelve years we saw economic return and the constant conversation that economic that that the that the Dow Jones was was you know was the highest it's ever been while people constantly were hard, had a harder and harder time living a regular life and and it became harder and harder to live a regular life and I think that plays into this the fact that we remember quite distinctly <laughs> what it was like and and want a response to be very different and this gives a roadmap and again it's it, they're they're high principles that are meant to be taken and run with with on by, by particular, particular campaigns but we remember what that was like and and we want the different yeah no exactly that memory is still really fresh i was sort of thinking while you said that it was like hollywood has barely stopped making movies about the last recession and now they're gearing up to make new ones um, yeah, like, like really, I was, I was thinking about it. It was like, it was the beginning. And again, I understand we're, we're not an American podcast, but it was the beginning of Obama's sort of presidency that he was dealing with, um, with that sort of the great recession. And now we're, we're really only, we're only one administration later. Um, there hasn't been much room. And I think it's, yes, it's, it's a generation that, that remembers what it was like, remembers how brutal it was and is still feeling the effects of that. We're still feeling those effects within the housing market. Like you said, within sort of renting, we're still dealing with those effects in the sense that we're a generation of people who are used to working multiple jobs to make ends meet. Um, so, and, and yeah, and, and we don't want it to be that way anymore. And, and something like these principles are a really important, by no means are they a first step because these are issues that people and organizations have been working on for, for decades now, but it's a really powerful way of saying, Hey, these are things that we're all united on. I mean, back when, um, when, the Occupy movement was at its strongest in fall of 2011. The biggest criticism was, cool, we don't know what you actually want. All you hippies gathered in the park, you're angry and you tell us you want change, tell us what that change is. And now I think the movement is strong enough and finally at a place where we can say, this is what we want. We can tell you what we want. And actually we've made it look really pretty. And there's a website that's easy to navigate and you can click to sign up and you can be part of a Slack workplace if you want to talk brass tacks and getting down to business. So like, not only are we out there and we're angry and we're making our voices heard, but we have very specific demands and it's a whole lot of us demanding it. Yeah. And, and I think what should also be noted is that, that the response by Obama in 2008, you know, was spun as a green response. A whole bunch of money flowed into renewable projects um, and in and, and different type of environmental projects. But but you know it but it did that in a very direct sort of you know still leaving money in the hands of the of the rich and and in the hands of the investing class uh rather than trying to help individuals do anything and so what you saw was yeah, there are probably now more and larger solar companies in the states than there would have been otherwise. But what has not happened is any real decrease, or actually straight up no decrease in an increasing of CO two emissions. Like it hasn't actually changed what the actual reality. Well, yeah, and then unfortunately, it's like yes, we've got we've got solar companies that are that are booming. We've got um, electric vehicle companies that are really popular. But unfortunately, those solar companies are still, for the most part owned by companies like Suncor. They're, they're owned by companies that have vested stakes in, in continuing the oil and gas industry. And 
the biggest or most, maybe most, I shouldn't say biggest because they probably don't produce the most, but the most well-known electric vehicle company in the world is owned by a multi-billionaire <laughs> who is like a, a, a modern day Lex Luthor. So like really progress has been made, but, but not the progress that we really deserve. Um, so hopefully by, by putting these principles out there and and the government receiving them from from what we from what we understand the reception has been really positive to these so far um there's been stories all over the world uh since they came out on monday um the number of endorsing organizations has grown to over 325 so it's like and more are signing on every day and every hour so it's there's there's a groundswell of support and and not just backing these principles these were principles that were drafted specifically for the um so-called Canadian context, but they're they're similar to principles that have been developed all over the world for, for international context, for other countries, for other sector-specific organizing um, sort of uh, areas. Um, it's just, it's really quite obvious that there is a very specific direction governments are being pulled by their citizens to go towards. Um, and I'm really, really hoping that this time around, this is the way they go for, for their sake and ours, because I think if if Trudeau makes the kind of mistakes that Harper did um, back in 2008, 2009, then, then things, won't, things won't look very good for them. That sounds more threatening than it is. <laughs> yeah, they will lose the next election. Um, and uh, well, thank you so much, Lauren. Uh, if you, if, again, to reiterate, the website is justrecoveryforall.ca. Go on, check it out. Uh, and we'll have more information and more stories from different organizations who are working towards this. Uh, next week, in fact, we're hoping to get uh, M.A. Ma from uh, Toronto Environment Alliance to come on to talk about their work in the city uh, and more will be coming. So thanks so much, everyone. Have a wonderful green week and we'll see you all real soon.